Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm communications specialist, Clay. In this episode, coordinator for faculty programs, Philip Hollingsworth, speaks with associate professor of city and regional planning, Minu Tawari. In their conversation, Professor Tawari discusses her current book project on urban development in India, specifically connecting people to water. She also talks about how she entered the academic side of planning, as well as future writing projects she hopes to pursue outside her field. Could you talk a little bit about the the book project itself? I just want to say how absolutely rewarding it was to be part of the writing, part of the semester here at the IH, to be a fellow here. And I hadn't realized the breadth of the humanities and the social sciences here on our campus and how you could gain so much by hearing closely, listening, and reading closely the work of each other, and I got a lot out of it. The book project originally was about adaptation stories, uh, how cities, communities within cities, and especially people on the ground are dealing with these pressures that are imposed upon them by a changing climate. And the lens through which I look at uh, the changing climate is the economic lens, but not the economy in terms of what it means for GDP for a country alone, but what it means for people on the ground. You know, so if they fall sick because of, uh, you know, high heat or because of floods, they don't get to go to work. And so for people that are poorest, that is a huge deal. And they lose their earnings or they have other kinds of problems. Or if there's a small business person and they need to store things, and if there's, again, floods or excess heat, they might lose their the material that they sell. So the original project was about these stories in four cities. And as I went into the semester and heard my interviews, I realized that I had a lot of material on water itself. And one of the things that I look at and I'm interested in is institutional reform in the urban sector, particularly in the water sector and basic services. So that fit very well. And so I, you know, as I culled the interviews, I realized that I have a book on water. So it's called Water Stories. Mm-hmm. And it's about four or five cities and eight chapters uh, that are organized in three different areas, uh, three different parts, um, I should say. The first is uh, water for the poor, uh, which is a challenge, especially in developing countries. And the second part is about, uh, it's called a benchmark politics. So that is when the state or other actors come in and set certain standards. And again, it was an aspirational standard and not all cities, not, I mean, not even a majority of the cities are able to provide water 24-7 simply because you don't have the resources to do so and most people aren't connected. But those that could started to you know, respond to this standard. And the third part of the book is called Inverted Sequence. And that looks at the logics, the institutional logics of providing water services and who sets, who, who, where do these logics come from? And in this particular section, I'm calling into question some of the assumptions about providing water in a certain sequence. And these have been pushed by, you know, large multilateral uh, institutions like the World Bank well, and so forth. What would that sequence be? Like when you say that, uh, pushing water in a certain sequence, yeah, what is this, that? The sequence is, uh, that's being pushed is that you have to cover the cost of what you provide. 
and water is a public good and often mm -hmm. it is deeply subsidized but to the extent that you can cover recover the cost of providing that service is what uh, institutions argue is the right way to provide water because otherwise there is no incentive to conserve and then you end up requiring more and more water so they say that connect people meter them and then charge them for the water that you provide based on how much they consume right. and that will then cover the cost of what you're providing and it'll give you resources to then further connect more people and the inverted sequence is that in some cases some cities have uh, realized that it's very difficult to connect people it, it is costly to connect people and secondly when you meter them there's a cost to the metering and right. when you aren't able to provide the service that is expected uh, by the households that you connect the metering doesn't reflect what is expected so you know you you the or there could be leakages there could be other kinds of things so households remove the meters or they don't pay and the meters themselves are costly some of the cheaper meters break down very quickly so there is an extra cost of metering so in some cases they just connect and they ask people to pay a base rate a flat rate and the flat rate reflects the household size or the size of the unit that they uh, supply the water to and then use that to provide further connections and then once trust is gained that is you've connected people and you've provided them water and they've gotten into the habit of paying a little bit then you come and provide meters later on so you first connect get them into the habit of paying some amount of money oh i see and then connect and charge them uh, based on volumetric tariff so i'm looking at that but there are historical examples for example new york city yeah and london had a similar strategy but they started out at a time when the population was not that large and then resources were not constrained uh, so it was it is a little different but i'm interested in looking at the institutional arrangements that cut across these historical examples as well as what this did and maybe at this point i should step back and say that you know what i work on is broadly i'm interested in looking at economic development particularly in low income countries with this idea of how do people catch up and how do they grow uh, and that growth that i'm interested in looking at is not macro level growth it is growth of people and communities and so under what conditions do you see locally rooted broad based growth that is income distributing rather than income concentrating and i'll give you one example uh, so i was conducting interviews in a firm that was producing shoes for export and these were leather shoes pretty expensive and they were doing both uppers and and the full shoe and about 70% of their exports of this particular firm were to germany and where was this firm this firm was located in uh, chennai in okay. southern india okay. so uh, the spatial focus of my work is south asia and and mainly india and so i was uh, at the firm interviewing the manager as well as walking through the firm and while i was there the german buyer or an agent of the german buyer was also present and uh, he was not in a good mood so i was not next to him but i could see him from across the hall and across the shop floor and he was frustrated and he would throw the shoes and the uppers that people were producing and was just you know meaning that it wasn't of the quality that was expected so then he came back to the manager's room and i was there as well 
And he just sat while I was talking. And so then I asked him that I saw that, that you were frustrated with what you were seeing. So what explains that? He said that I feel Indian workers just can't work. They can't learn. So I said, why is that? He said, I was here three, four months ago, and I told them what to do, and they're doing exactly the opposite. So it's, a, it's as if I wasn't here. So then I asked the manager, how do you explain that? And he said that, well, the workers we have today are not the workers he trained. Oh, I see. Yeah. There's been a turnover. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's because there was a squatter settlement next to this industrial estate where this firm was located, and they had been moved out of town, out of, you know, to the periphery of the town. So the workers left, and they were, these were new workers. And he said, even though there are some of those workers that are still commuting and coming here, Many of them can't be here on time because they have to wait for the water tanker to come to collect water for their you know, household needs. And they can't control when the water tanker comes, and so there's uncertainty. So sometimes they can't be here when other workers need them in order to provide the kind of workflow that is needed to provide good quality. So should I fire them just because they're collecting water to their household? And he said, we, in fact, talked to these city governments, and we've told them we'd be interested in contributing some money to make sure that they upgrade some of these settlements in situ, that is where they are, rather mm -hmm. than moving them around, and to provide some certainty about when water tankers arrive or to provide them these basic services. So you see the connection between the place where people live and the ability of this firm to deliver quality in order to itself compete. You work in the Department of City and Regional Planning, so I, I was just curious what led you to an academic career in this, in this field? That is a little um, circuitous. Yeah, that's um, fine. And so I grew up in India in a middle-class household, and like many others uh, in India who are middle-class, education is key, but then the pathways are limited, engineering or medicine. So that's what I was looking between. So I was a science student. I was clear that I didn't really want to do medicine, but I, engineering was fine, and I was happy with that. So that's where I thought I was going. But at the same time, I was interested in other things like history, reading, and art, as well as story writing, and had won a few awards you know, for that. And my neighbors uh, and friends knew about it. So we had this family friend who was an engineer, who was a professor in an engineering college, who visited us when I was in the 10th grade and sort of told my parents, you know, we talked about plans and he said that, have you ever considered architecture? He said, architecture in India, it's taught as an engineering field in some places, uh, but you have to have a science background to get in. But it's, he said, it's one of those fields that combines science and humanities or science and arts, as he put it, and is creative, as well as you know, the background that you're preparing for would be just what you need to get in. So I hadn't heard of architecture. So I read up a little bit about it, was happy, and applied, and got in, and did very well, and so enjoyed it. But in the fourth year or so, we had to do a research project. And that I really loved. Yeah. I loved it. And so then some of my faculty members saw that interest and urged me to do research-oriented thesis. And the thesis I did was to look at desert settlements, which is that these harsh environments within which people live and work, I wanted to understand their social and spatial environment. 
That is, how do they cope? What do they do? And in those interviews that I conducted, I asked them about their economic life as well as their spatial and social lives. And that connection was very, very appealing to me. And again, one of my mentors suggested that if you really want to follow this and take it forward, then you might want to apply to MIT. And there is this program there called you know, Master of Science in Architecture Studies, which allows you to make your own uh, program. Oh, okay. It's interdisciplinary. Yeah. And so, I, long story short, I got there and um, took a course in uh, economics, uh, in a microeconom- you know, microeconomics, and I thought that this is really explaining the larger policy environment or the economic environment within which these communities live and work, and I'd love to be able to work at this level. And so then I um, joined Urban Planning, okay. which is a program where there is a specialization called economic development, and that's how I came to this field. That's great. <laughs> From a very different background yeah, from yeah. architecture. We ask this of everyone. What's a book that changed your life? When I was doing my dissertation, I was at a place where I felt that I was spinning my wheels and you know, my writing was could be more productive and more inspiring and I was, you know, tired as uh, happens after you've written for many months and so I felt I was a bit stuck. So I went to uh, my advisor, knew about this, and so she called me. She took me out for dinner, and I thought she would talk about writing, but she didn't. We had a nice dinner. Then she lived close by, and so she took me to her place. She said, maybe a coffee at my place. I went, and there, too, it was all about, you know, what movie you saw and things. And, And then she said, let me drop you home. And as we were leaving, she picked up a book from her desk, and it was uh, Flannery O'Connor's Mystery and Manners. Okay. It's a book, uh, it's, she's a Southern writer, but in, uh, in that book she was writing about the writing enterprise. And uh, what um, my advisor, Judith Tendler, told me was that uh, she turns to this book when she's stuck in writing, and that the book shows you how writing is about a mystery story, about thinking through a mystery story, about resolving a mystery and uh, other things. And I, of course, took the book home, and she lent the book to me, and, and it was fascinating because there were these short chapters about the experience of writing, not about what to do, right. but about how this particular author wrote and, what, and how they reflected on it. And so just because it, it completely released me from my being stuck, that book comes to mind as something that... Uh, was fascinating, and it was also an example of how a good advisor advises. You mentioned writing when you were younger. Do you still write apart from your academic writing? I don't, unfortunately, but I do have. I do maintain a journal. What if if you were to write other things? What what would you write, or what were you writing? Your award-winning writing. What oh, was that? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I was eleven years old. No, that's fine. <laughs> was it fiction? Or? It was fiction. It wasn't poetry, it was fiction. And I think the one thing that has emerged from my fieldwork that I wish I could write uh, you know, as a book or a non-academic book is the process of fieldwork itself and, and the window into people's lives and the meaning they make of their lives that one gets as a researcher after having spent you know, a lot of time with them or while one is spending time with them, 
And this doesn't have to be nine months or one year or two years. It could be even, you know, a deep immersion in a place for a month or yeah. a few weeks. And so the first, my dissertation was on um, a region in India where there was growth taking place despite years of conflict. And the conflict was a separatist kind of conflict, like, you know, in uh, the Basque region, it was a bit like that. Right. It was a very, very agriculturally advanced region, very rich region. Uh, it was known for agriculture, not industry, but underneath the agriculture, there was industry that was going on, which is very productive. And it was organized in very interesting ways where people, they were in, uh, you know, firms were interlinked to each other, which allowed them to defray their risk uh, to the extent that large firms in other parts of the country were sourcing products like bicycles and sewing machines and light engineering goods from here with their own labels because they were providing goods at the same level of quality, if not better, at much lower prices because of the way they were organized. And that's what I meant by institutional arrangements. But while I did that field work, you know, there was an environment of conflict in the air. And some of the people I interviewed lost their lives because of the violence later right. on. But having talked to them and having seen them wrestle with this, it was almost, the, the violence was cast as, uh, as religious, uh, as driven by religious difference. That is, this region had Sikhs that were dominant and the rest of the country is, you know, Hindu and mixed and so forth. And there was this identity that uh, was up for grabs and people wanted Sikh identity to be dominant and they said, we can't do that. We cannot do that as long as we're part of this bigger nation that has a different religious identity. But what I discovered was that this was about economic difference. It was about the plateauing of the growth that was happening as a result of their agricultural practices, which had been very successful during the Green Revolution, but now had plateaued and they needed to do something else, which hadn't really happened. And one thing that many people do is to, from agriculture, go into industry. So the stories about these interlinked identities, economic, personal, religious, of men and women, of different kinds of groups, firms versus farmers, and even amongst farmers, large versus small, it was so fascinating that I thought that I wish I could talk about this. In, in other ways yeah. than in just a, you know, a, a book or an academic piece or an article. I would love to write about it. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.